This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. Guys, did you guys, did, did you know that Easter is about Jesus? About this guy named Jesus. We remember on this day, Jesus, he died for our sins, right? On the third day, he was resurrected. And that's what we teach our children. That's what we say. And many times, that's all the believers know. Oh, yeah, Easter, Jesus, Jesus was resurrected, resurrected from the dead. How do you know that sometimes it ends up leaving more questions? Believers today, will, when they say, well, you ask them, what, what is Easter all about? Well, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. Well, what does that mean? Why? How, how did dying? Why did, what did that have to do with your sins? Most Christians today can't answer that question. We explain Jesus so simply. And today, I'm going to do a message. I'm going to just, I called it Jesus, man or myth. Y'all say man or myth. myth. I got a little cover slide. There we go. Jesus, man or myth. And obviously, we're going to answer this question. And I'm just going to leave you in suspense on which way we're going to go with it. Okay? (laughs) Last year, I did a message. How many of you remember the message last Easter called Drive Through Jesus? It talked about what Jesus will you serve? Because I think most of us would agree today that our society makes Jesus into whoever they want him to be. Most Christians today, they serve whatever Jesus makes them most comfortable. Isn't it true? Oh, oh, I know, I know Jesus said this, but, but God knows my heart. Did he say it or did he not? Right? Which Jesus will you serve? Um... With that said, how many of you know that there has been a movement? There's always been a movement against Jesus, against Christianity, but it's increasing. There are actually people now that are pushing this new movement saying that Jesus never existed. It's pretty crazy because you, you won't find like any legitimate historian out there, even atheist historian that will deny that Jesus existed. There's too much evidence. Take the Bible completely out of it. There's too much evidence. Hundreds and hundreds of documents found all over the world. There's too much evidence. But they're trying to push this idea that Jesus didn't exist. I'm not going to cover that today. Like I said, I think there's too much evidence. And you want to go in and you want to try and figure it out for yourself, you want to try and study that, do it. You're going to quickly be convinced, okay, yeah, Jesus was a guy. He he was. So we're not going to really cover that today. But this leads to the question of who was Jesus and what did he do? How many of you know that this is is the source of every controversy? Who was Jesus and what did he do? Now, in the last couple weeks, I did some reading. I went to some different websites, uh, obviously secular websites, trying to figure out what are people saying today about Jesus? Those who are trying to disprove who the Bible says that he is. I found a number of things. There were websites dedicated to the idea that Jesus was a great con man. Some even said possibly a skilled magician, skilled at sleight of hand and and different things like that. Possibly skilled in hypnosis. Found that a number of times. You know, they have to say that 
because thousands of people were witness to the things that happened. Thousands and thousands. Many attribute that to mass hysteria. He must have been really good at stirring people up and believing certain things. It must have been mass hysteria because of all the people who witnessed what happened during the life of Jesus. You guys have heard this. He had children. His death was faked. Most of you have seen that that came to light through, um, that really came to light through uh, the Da Vinci Code back years ago. Uh, but it actually goes way back before that. You, you know where this, what the source of this is, this idea that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene? There was a piece of papyrus found in Egypt. They've carbon dated it. They think it goes back to 400 AD. And they've tried to translate it. I believe it was actually in Greek, but it was found in Egypt. And they've tried to translate it. And what they've been able to translate, there's a portion that says, and Jesus said, my wife. That's all it says. So Jesus was married. You know the other interesting thing about this piece of papyrus that this whole theory has been come from? This piece of papyrus was eight by three centimeters in size. And so there's a theory that Jesus faked his death because it says Jesus said, he could have been telling a parable. Who knows? People have bought into this idea. Um... That the resurrection of Jesus was a hoax. The first theory is that the disciples stole Jesus' body from a sealed and guarded tomb. There's evidence of that too outside the Bible. Uh, that, that it was sealed and guarded, not that it was stolen. Um, this idea that his disciples stole his body from a sealed and guarded tomb and conspired together and decided they would teach that Jesus was resurrected. There's a second theory to that. The grave robbers, grave robbers came along and stole the body. That when Jesus' disciples discovered the theft, they decided just to explain it away by saying that he was resurrected. There is another theory that I found very interesting on a few websites that said that Jesus fainted on the cross. Possibly from shock, blood loss, whatever it may have been. That he was removed by the cross, uh, alive but unconscious. But they thought he was dead, so they placed him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And that supposedly Jesus revived at some point. They say it was possibly because of the coolness of the tomb. And in complete darkness, he was able to unwrap himself from the grave clothes. And he was able, in complete darkness, to make himself to the, to the stone, somehow able to roll it away and sneak away without the guards seeing him somehow able to hobble on pierced feet all the way back to the disciples and said, ta-da, I'm alive, I resurrected. But really, he had just fainted. Guys, I don't know about y'all, but this stuff's harder to believe than just believe what the Bible says. By the way, I looked up uh, surviving crucifixion. You know, there is one instance that's been recorded in history of somebody surviving crucifixion. It was recorded by Josephus. Y'all know he was an ancient historian, and you can buy a, you know, a book of his, of his writings. And um, Josephus um, said that there were three men that were crucified one day, and that somebody went on their half to the leaders and pleaded for these three men's lives. And finally, they gave them grace and said, you can take them down. And so they went, and they removed these three men from the cross. They had a doctor, a physician on hand, and they tried to save these three guys' life. Two of them died very quickly. The third one, over time, according to Josephus, 
uh, was, uh, he, he was able to survive. How many of you would agree that once you're hanging on that cross and you've experienced um, just the, the bodily harm that happens from it, there's very little chance that you're going to survive. You, 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 got, I mean, you got a better chance of winning the lotto, right? Very little chance. How many of you heard of Josh McDowell? You may have heard of him. He's a Christian apologist. Uh, he's written over 150 books. Some of you guys know uh, his book, uh, Evidence That Requires a Verdict. Um, the most famous book he wrote is More Than a Carpenter. And Josh McDowell was an agnostic. You guys know what an agnostic is? You got atheist, you got agnostic. Atheist, well, don't, they believe that, yeah. Don't, they believe that believe nothing. Um, yeah, they, they don't believe in any God or any higher power. And then you got agnostic who basically, they just say, you know what? I'll never know. There's no way of ever proven, so I'm just going to go on with my life. If I, if, I can't see it with my, if I can't see it, feel it with my senses or explain through science, we'll never know. So I'm just going to go on and, you know, with that in mind. Uh, Josh McDowell was, um, was an agnostic, uh, just like uh, Lee Strobel. Some of you have heard of Lee Strobel. Some of you have read his book, The Case for Christ, or you saw the movie that came out in the last year or two on that. But Josh McDowell set out on a journey to disprove the Christian faith, and he, just like Lee Strobel, as he went into this, he found it a very difficult task. And he spent years examining historical evidence, archaeological discoveries, original manuscripts and texts of the Bible. Um, ancient f- was proven to be different things. And the more he studied, the more the Christian faith was proven to be historically accurate to him. And he finally came to the point where he converted to Christianity. During his study, he concluded that no one, not even the most devout atheist, could escape the evidence that Jesus was an historical person and at least would agree that he altered human history. I think we can all agree with that. We'll get into that more in a minute. But as a world-renowned historian, there was was a world-renowned historian named uh, Jaroslav Pelikan, and he said this, He said, it's from his birth, from Jesus' birth, that most of the human race dates its calendars, and it's by his name that millions curse, and it's by his name that millions pray. How many of us can agree that there's one man in history that's turned the world upside down, that it's altered the course of human history, it's Jesus Christ. Regardless of whether you believe that he is Lord, regardless of whether you believe that he's Son of God, Jesus has been transforming lives for 2,000 years, regardless of who you believe that he is. In the process, he has changed the direction of human history. His teachings have been an overwhelming force of good all over the world. Millions of people have been saved from starvation. They've been clothed. They've been sheltered in Jesus' name. Guys, the world aid, if you look at it, any disaster happens. 95% of those who show up on the scene, it's the church. They're doing it in the name of Jesus. Unfortunately, it's also true that much harm has been committed in Jesus' name, right? Both by the church and by individuals seeking to further their own agendas in his name. There have been wars, there's been torture, and there's been murder in the name of Jesus. True? These things are facts that very few people in the world would attempt to dispute. So what is the issue? The issue is the fact that Jesus claimed to be God, claimed to be the son of the He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He claimed to be the son of the one true God. He said, I and the Father are one. How many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis? He was a 
British professor at Cambridge University, and he lived from 1898 to 1963. Many of you know he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote Mere Christianity. He wrote the Screwtape Letters. If you guys haven't read C.S. Lewis's books, you need to read his books. But he truly understood what we're talking about today. And I'm going to read you a quote of C.S. Lewis. I love this. He said, I'm here to try to prevent anyone from saying the truly foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They like to say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't, ex I don't accept his claim to be God. How many times have you heard that before? Somebody asks, who do you believe that Jesus is? He was a great moral teacher. C.S. Lewis calls people to say that a fool. <laughs> this is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or even something worse. He went on to say, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at your feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great teacher. He did not leave this open for us. He never intended to. Many people believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher, but believe nothing more. How can you believe that somebody who claims to be God is a great moral teacher if you don't believe their claim that they're God? Does this make sense? Yeah? Y'all awfully quiet this morning. Those of you who aren't regulars here, man, our church likes to talk back. <laughs> Jesus claimed to be God, and he didn't, didn't leave any other option open. His claim is either true or it's false. And that was his plan that we would have to decide. He even asked his disciples, the 12 that followed him, and knew him best, who do you say that I am? It says in Matthew 16, verses 13 and 15, it'll be on the screen. You've also got a note sheet that was in your service guide. I'm reading from the Passion Translation this morning. He said, when Jesus came to Caesarea of Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples this question, what are people so convinced that you're John the Baptist? Man, who do they believe I am? The disciples answered, some are convinced that you're John the baptizer. Others say that you're Elijah, reincarnated to Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, Jesus said, but you, who do you say that I am? Guys, C.S. Lewis, he popularized what they call the trilemma uh, argument. The trilemma argument was this three-legged stool and it quickly gets to the heart of the matter about whether you'll accept Jesus or not. And some of you may have, have read some of Josh McDowell's writings. He actually brought C.S. Lewis's writings back to the forefront. And, uh, and he asked this question that C.S. Lewis asked years ago. He asked, is Jesus a lunatic, a liar, or Lord? He's got to be one of the three. He is either a lunatic, a liar, or he is who he said he was. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I am going to run through it for just a moment. You'll notice on your note sheet, you got three blanks, and we're going to hit each one of these things real quick. First question, was Jesus a liar? Was Jesus a liar? Guys, 
if Jesus knew that he wasn't God, then he was lying, right? But if he was lying, he was also a hypocrite, right? Because he was telling everybody else to be honest, whatever the cost. Oh, what a hypocrite if, he's li- if he was lying, if he knew that he wasn't God. If that's the case, then we can almost go as far as to say Jesus was evil. And I don't think most anybody would say that, even non-believers. He was telling others to forsake their own religious beliefs and to follow him for their eternal destiny. That's pretty tough if he was lying. I'll tell you something else I thought of. <laughs> if Jesus was lying, he was also an idiot because that's what led to his crucifixion. That claim. What kind of idiot who knew he wasn't God would claim to be God all the way to crucifixion? There's a book called Cold Case Christianity, and this was written by a a cold case homicide detective named J. J. Warner Wallace. And he listed three decisive motives of the heart behind any misbehavior. So whatever your crime may be, whatever this thing you may be, whatever this misbehavior it is, it's linked to three motives. And these three motives he mentioned were, one, financial greed. Makes sense, right? Secondly, sexual or relational desire. Anything we True. And thirdly was power. Anything we do, any crime we commit, any misbehavior is linked to one of those three things. How many of you know we don't, can't find any argument anywhere that Jesus was interested in any of those things? He didn't care about financial greed. He didn't care about sexual relational desire. And he didn't care about power. He shunned them all. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus taught his disciples to give to the needy and not store up treasures in heaven. I'm not, and to store up treasures in heaven. No evidence existed that Jesus was ever motivated by lust or relationship. As a matter of fact, the gospels stress uh, that Jesus respected women more than anybody else during that day. There were women that were following and supporting his ministry all the time. And rather than gain power for himself, Jesus modeled serving others and giving to others without ever expecting return, even if it's your enemy. He taught his disciples to do the same. And trust me, if he had been interested in power, he could have had it. The Israelites, they expected him to be king. They wanted him to overthrow Rome. He had enough people following him, there could have been quite the uprising. But he didn't care about political office. He didn't care about power. He shunned it. So is Jesus a liar? Boy, it's hard to convince of that. Number two, was Jesus a lunatic? Was Jesus a lunatic? So if he wasn't a liar, then it's feasible to think that maybe he was mistaken about the idea that he was God. After all, some of you have heard this said before, a person can be truly sincere and be sincerely wrong. We've all been there, right? And in this, I'm just going to read you, I'm going to read you another quote. There was a philosopher named Peter Kreeft, and he wrote why we have to reject the idea of Jesus being a lunatic. 
He said, a measure of your insanity is the size of the gap between what you think you are and what you really are. Does this make sense? A measure of your insanity is the size of the gap between what you think you are and what you really are. If I think I'm the greatest philosopher in America, then I'm only an arrogant fool. If I think I'm Napoleon, I'm probably over the edge. If I think I'm a butterfly, then I have fully embarked on the sunny shores of sanity. (laughs) But if I think I am God, I'm even more insane because the gap between the infinite man and a butterfly, the infinite God, is even greater than the gap between two finite things, even a man and a butterfly. Well then, why not liar or lunatic? Because no one who has read the Gospels can honestly and seriously consider that option. The savviness, the canniness, the human, the human wisdom, the attractiveness of Jesus emerges from the Gospels with an unavoidable force to any but the most hardened and prejudiced reader. He goes on to say, Jesus has in abundance precisely those qualities which liars and lunatics most, most conspicuously lack. He had practical wisdom. His ability to read human hearts, his deep and winning love, his passion and compassion, his ability to attract and make people feel at home and forgiven, his authority, and above all, his ability to astonish, his unpredictability, his creativity. Liars and lunatics are so dull and predictable. No one who knows the Gospels and human beings can seriously entertain the possibility that Jesus was either liar or lunatic. The idea that Jesus was self-deceived or delusional is simply not compatible with the impression that he has left on human history. How many of you would agree from what we see of Jesus? And you can actually read what psychologists have said and such when they've read through the Gospels about Jesus. Very few would agree that Jesus was a lunatic. So if he wasn't a a liar and he wasn't a lunatic, number three is Jesus Lord. Is Jesus Lord? In the first century, when Jesus was walking the earth, there were quite a few ideas of who he was. People had different thoughts. We just read there that some believed he was Elijah, some thought he was John the Baptist, one of the old prophets reincarnated. But let's go back to Matthew 16 again right quick. We're going to read verses 15 and 16. He said, but you, who do you say that I am, Jesus asked. Simon Peter spoke up and said, you are the anointed one. Anointed one means Christ. That's what you'll find in all the other versions, translations. You are the anointed one, the Christ, the son of the living God. Like Peter, we can choose to decide that Jesus was being truthful about his claims of being God. And we have the choice of accepting him or rejecting him as personal savior. Guys, there are countless documents that prove the Bible. There are countless documents besides the Bible that prove that he was crucified by the Romans. But was millions upon millions of history. We were just talking about how Jesus changed the course of human history. There are millions upon millions today that confess Jesus as Lord. If you're truly willing and you open up your eyes, you can see that Jesus is clearly working among his people today. His presence is unmistakable when his people draw near to him. He's still answering prayers. Even when the answer is no, he's still answering prayers today. He's still leading us and he's still guiding us. God's word tells us that we must choose 
for ourselves whether or not we believe that Jesus is Lord. Can the Bible itself prove to the unbeliever that Jesus is Lord? Not really. But let me tell you, the Bible is being proven over and over again, especially by archaeological discoveries. The Bible, every year, there's more evidence of the Bible's accuracy. The Bible clearly shows us that Jesus, as a proven historical figure, was amazing in the way he demonstrated love. And he always gave all the credit to the Father, with whom he claimed to be equal. John 20, verse 31 says, But all that is recorded here is so that you will fully believe that Jesus is the anointed one. What's anointed one mean? Christ, the Son of God, and that through your faith in him, you will experience eternal life by the power of his name. So we are left with the choice of believing or not. Who do you say that Jesus is? 2,000 years ago, Jesus asked that question. And today, he stands before each of us. Every day, he's standing before each of us saying, who do you say that I am? You may be sitting here and you may be an agnostic. Deciding not to make a choice in regards to faith, in regards to God. And you may be wondering, when it all comes down to it, does it really matter what I think about Jesus? Yeah, it really does. It really does. It means everything. Why? Because each of us, as part of the human race, we got a serious problem. The Bible tells us that it all goes back to our ancient father, Adam, right? Adam sinned, and we sin. Adam's disobedience brought not only physical death to him and all his descendants, but also spiritual death, separation from God. Although Adam's physical death was not immediate like his spiritual death was, both were certain, both were coming. And the penalty of death was passed to each of us as Adam's descendants. Anytime that we fail to do things God's way, the way he created us to do them, we sin. God teaches in Scripture that we are responsible for our sins, that sin separates us from him, and we will be judged for our sin. We don't like that word judgment. Lord have mercy. Guys, the prophet Ezekiel said, the soul who sins shall die. That, that, that right there applies to all of us. The soul who sins will die. The Bible clearly tells us that those who sin will be consumed in judgment. Prophet Isaiah said, your iniquities or your sins have separated you from your God. And one of the biggest things One of the biggest lies that the enemy has told in the world today is that, well, you know what? You're a good person. You're okay. God just wants you to be good. So I hear that all the time. I'm a good person. What do you believe about God? Well, I'm a good person. God's good with me. In Jeremiah 17, God says our hearts deceive us into believing that we're good before God. We believe our good deeds 
there enough to please him. In other words, we can work hard enough to please the God of heaven and make him absolutely forget all the sins and iniquities of our life. It's nonsense. What a lie. Isaiah says that we are, like an un, we are all like an unclean thing and all of our righteousness, all those things that we think we do so good, all those things about us that we think are so great and will make God so happy are nothing more than filthy rags dropped before him. Makes things look pretty bleak, doesn't it? A price had to be paid for sin. That price is paid through judgment. People don't like that word judgment, but anytime we go to court, there is a judgment, right? They examine the evidence, and judgment is made. We must. Here's the problem. We stand before God as the judge, and we can't deny it. We're guilty. We're guilty. So here comes judgment. Here's the good news. God loved you so much that he got Jesus involved in the matter. Like I said a little while ago, God the Father had to look to Jesus and say, you're the only one that can save mankind from this mess that they're in. From death, from judgment. People love to blame God. They love to blame God. How can your loving God ever send someone to hell? We're bound for hell from day one. He's the only one who made a way out. That's the problem. It's being twisted when people look at it that way. How can God send somebody to hell? He doesn't. You do. We each do. All of us would be lost except for the fact that our God of justice is also a God of love. In Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 3, the same chapter where we see Adam and Eve sin and curse all of mankind with sin, in that same chapter we see in verse 15, God announcing that he has a plan to redeem mankind and to make this right. In the very same chapter, God had a plan in the very same moment that Adam and Eve sinned. What a terrible God that is. Scriptures show us God's plan to redeem mankind was through the one known as the Messiah, the Savior. Messiah in the New Testament Greek is translated Christ. In Genesis 3, verse 21, we see that God sacrifices an animal. He shed the blood of an animal to clothe Adam and Eve after their disobedience. In Exodus chapter 12, it was the blood of an unblemished lamb that was applied to the doorpost that saved the firstborns on Passover from the judgment of death. In Leviticus chapter 11, God said, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. God's love provided a way to atone or to cover over our sins through the blood of an unblemished sacrifice. So we look at the Old Testament. We see all through the Old Testament, we see that an animal was sacrificed each and every year to atone for the sin, to compensate, to pay for the sin, to pay the judgment price for every person who sinned. Something I was thinking about the other day 
as they would sacrifice that animal, you realize that that judgment requires everything. You could never save up enough to pay the price of the judgment. You could never be good enough. You could never give, do enough good works. You can go be a monk in a monastery and pray 18 hours a day for the rest of your life, and it's not enough to pay the price of judgment. That's why the animal had to die, because the judgment would consume everything. There was never enough to pay the price. The fire of God would fall. How many of you remember in 2 Kings, how many of you remember when Elijah, he's got the prophets of Baal and they go up to the mountain and, um, and they, they basically have this little test, right? They, they build their altars to see if, is, is Baal the true God or is the God of Israel the true God? And so we see that after everything the prophets of Baal had done, we see Elijah gets 12 big stones and builds his, his own altar to God. These 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And it says that he gets a bull and he sacrifices this bull, and he cuts it up, and he puts it on top of the altar as a sacrifice before God. And it says, then he digs this trench around the altar, and he tells them, go get a big vessel and fill it with water. And he pours water over the sacrifice and over the stones, and he said, get another one, and they pour another vessel of water. And he said, go get another one. They poured, over that, over, they poured the water over the, over the sacrifice, over the stones, and it said it fills the trench that they had built around it. And it said, then the fire of God fell. Say judgment. The fire of God fell. And it consumed the bowl. And it consumed the stones. And it licked up all the water. And it says, and it scorched the ground. It says the soil. Until there was nothing left. Because that even wasn't enough to atone for the judgment. It took everything. It took it all. Because... The judgment was greater than the sacrifice. Does this make sense? The judgment, the price of the judgment was greater than the sacrifice. Animal sacrifices were required yearly, but they weren't sufficient to cover sins forever. They had to keep doing it over and over again. We needed a redeemer, somebody who could come and stand in our place to take the punishment we deserved, to set us free from having to pay the penalty of judgment, the penalty of sin. Be acceptable to God as a final sacrifice for our sins, the Redeemer would have to be unblemished and sinless. So Jesus loved us so much that he provided his own sinless son, the Redeemer. Several hundred years before the Redeemer's arrival, before Jesus' arrival, Isaiah said the Messiah would come to earth and pay our redemption price. His unblemished blood in exchange for our souls. And it says, Isaiah 53 verses 4 through six. It says, yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. For we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Y'all remember back several weeks ago, I did the series on the Lord's Supper, and we talked about the great exchange. So up until Jesus, animals were being sacrificed as the exchange, but the sacrifice had to happen over and over and over and over again because it was never enough. The judgment was greater than the sacrifice. But along comes Jesus. The blemished, unblemished, sinless sacrifice. Guys, Jesus had never sinned, so the curse didn't apply to him. He didn't have to have animal sacrifices for himself. 
What was the curse? The curse was if you sin, you'll surely die. He didn't need it. He didn't need redemption. Instead, he went to the cross willingly, like a lamb laid on the altar. He willingly took all of our sin and shame and guilt, the curses, sickness, death, disease, anxiety, condemnation. He took it all upon himself. And here is the cool thing. For the first time and for the last time in human history, the sacrifice was greater than the judgment. The sacrifice was greater than the judgment. Judgment was totally and completely paid for for all of time, past, present, and future. It was paid for. I got a quick video that I'm going to want to show. And um, Shiloh sent this to me oh, as she hides her head. No. Shiloh sent this to me and um, uh, back during the Lord's Supper series. And um, I think this is a great example of uh, the great exchange. We've seen many movies, and we've seen city, many shows, and we've seen many pictures of Jesus hanging on the cross. But it, this is actually was produced by, um, uh, was it New Creation Church? It's uh, Joseph's Prince Ministry in, um, in Singapore. And he had always wanted to be able to make a video that, that tried to show what was going on in the spirit at the same time as the crucifixion was happening in the physical. And so this was their attempt at trying to, to you know, make a video out of this. It's an animation. Go ahead and, and let's bring the lights down and show that, Charles.
finished! Jesus asks today, who do you say that I am? And your answer will determine whether or not you're raised to eternal life or eternal judgment and condemnation. If you choose to reject Jesus as the Messiah, as your Savior, as your sacrificial, sacrificial lamb, the Bible says that your name's not written in the book of life. What does this mean? This means that you're still required to meet the demands of judgment. That will result in eternal separation from God when your body dies. But God loves you so much. His greatest desire is that you wouldn't perish. 2 Peter 3 um, verse 9 says, The Lord is not delaying the promise as some consider slowness, but he's being patient toward you because he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. By repenting of your sin, believing that Jesus sacrificed himself to pay your sin, to pay your judgment price, and believing that he rose from the dead and that he is God, the Bible says you inherit eternal life and not the judgment that is due to you. If you believe Jesus is your Savior, if you believe in him as your Savior, the Bible says that he no longer sees you as a sinner, but he sees you as a righteous child. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made the only one who did not know sin, being Jesus, to become sin for us, so that we who did not know righteousness might become the righteousness of God through our union with Him. The Bible also tells us when we accept Jesus as our Savior, He walks with us and He gives us life, even while we're walking on this earth. And then we will enjoy an eternal home and heaven is our promise. Now that you know who He is, Jesus stands before you and he says, who do you say that I am? And only you can make that decision for yourself. We all come to the place where we have to answer that question. You may be here and you may be a teenager and you've always ridden your parents' coattails. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I've always gone to church with my parents. God stands before you and says, who do you say that I am? We all come to the place or we have to answer that question. Let's all bow our heads. Actually, let's stand up and let's bow our heads together. With every head bowed. My question is, have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you accepted him as your sacrificial lamb? He did it for you. 
You just got to surrender to that sacrifice and say, I accept you, Jesus, as mine, as my Lord and Savior, as my sacrificial lamb, as the great exchange for me. You commit your life to him. Your old self dies. The Bible says that you're crucified with Christ. You repent of your sin. You live for him all your days. The old you no longer lives, but Jesus lives through you. It's called being born again. I want you to understand, we are not for one second pressuring you to join a church. It's not about that. God can deal with the details of your life later. But right now, he says, who do you say that I am? You do need to be born again. Jesus said, if not, unfortunately, you won't be able to see the kingdom of God. Jude 1.13 says that people who receive Jesus are wild waves of the sea foaming up in their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. 1 Peter 1.4 says that followers of Jesus, that we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. Where are you going? Who are you following? Ultimately, you have to make the decision. You have to decide. Yeah, it is about heaven and hell. Totally is. But you can have life right now on the earth. Eternal life doesn't start the day that your physical body dies. It starts the moment you surrender your life to Jesus and you say, Jesus, be my Lord. How are we born again? Romans 10 tells us, if we confess Jesus Lord of our life, if we repent and believe that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I would ask you, is your life aligned with God? What's in your heart? Is it Jesus? You know by what comes out of your life. Have you been crucified with Christ? Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ. Maybe you have, but you look at it, your life now, and you realize that things have slipped and that you're living for yourself and that he's not truly master. Today is your day. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, know my heart, test me, and even know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. I ask, are you on the path to everlasting life? What is your choice? Every head bowed. We're going to pray together. And guys, this could be the most pivotal moment of your entire life. So I want you to stop and I want you to consider and I want you to take this seriously right now. I don't care if you've prayed a prayer in your past before or not. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Have you accepted him as your sacrificial lamb being crucifying your old self with him and allowing Jesus to live through you? Every head bowed. If that's you and you would say, I need to surrender today. I've got to get things right. Lift up your hands so I can see. Who would say, I need to surrender my life to Jesus? Come on, who else? Look at me, look up at me when you raise your hand and then you can look down. All right, three, four, who else? Who else would say, I've got to make things right? That's five. Anybody else would say, I've got to surrender? We're gonna pray a prayer together. 
I don't want you to get caught up in the prayer. It's not the prayer that saves you, it's the position of your heart. If you mean these words with all of your heart, if you truly are willing to repent, to surrender your life to him, the Bible says that you'll be saved. You become a new creation. Old things are passed away. You receive eternal life and it starts today. You can be assured that every day you walk, that the creator of the universe is walking hand in hand with you. And you can rest assured that the moment you take that last breath, you're going to open your eyes and you're going to see the face of Jesus smiling at you. Let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, I recognize that I have not lived for you. I've been living for myself, and I'm ready to change. Jesus, I need you in my life. I want you in my life. I believe that you gave your life for me. You were my sacrifice. You were my lamb. I surrender my life to you. Lord, I repent. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Take up residence in my heart. Jesus, be my king. Be my savior. From this day forward, I will no longer be controlled by sin. I will no longer be controlled by my flesh. I'll no longer be controlled by my desires but I'll follow you all the days of my life. Holy Spirit, fill me, empower me to be everything you've called me to be. I'll walk with you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, when you came in, you should have gotten the communion elements. I want you to pull this out. We're gonna, we're gonna take this together quickly. But if you're a believer, if your life is surrendered to Jesus, even if you just did it 30 seconds ago, we ask you to take this together with us. We take this, we know that Jesus did it at the Last Supper, the bread representing the body of Christ, the juice representing the blood of Christ. We take it in remembrance. It's our way of remembering, it's our way of bowing and remembering the price that was paid. Let's open it up and let's hold up the bread together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread. We ask that you would bless this bread that represents the body of Jesus. The body of Jesus that was ripped. The body of Jesus that was torn. The body of Jesus that took everything that we deserved. It absorbed all of the judgment that was ours. We remember that body. And we thank you, Lord, for redemption. We thank you for atonement. We thank you for that sacrifice that paid the judgment price for us. We remember your body, Jesus. Let's take the bread together. Let's take the cup. Let's hold it up together. Lord, we ask that you would bless this juice. We take it remembering the blood of Jesus that was spilled that was poured out on our behalf. His blood of Jesus that sits on the altar before God the Father today and calls us clean and innocent and free. It calls us complete and it calls us whole. We thank you, Lord, for the precious blood of Jesus. Let's take it together.
you would just pass that down to the end of your aisles quietly as we prepare to close. Lord, I thank you for the work that you've done and that you're doing in this place today. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you draw all people to the Father. I pray, God, that today that your word would take up residence in our hearts. Even if we haven't made a decision to follow you yet, I just pray, God, that 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 word will continue. That seed that's planted will grow and it will come to fruition in Jesus' name. I thank you for the work that you're doing here. We're going to go ahead and close, guys. But right before we do, I want to ask our prayer partners to come down to the sides. They're going to be standing down here to the left and the right of the stage. And as we dismiss here in just a moment, I'm going to ask a couple of things. One, if you surrendered your life to Jesus, if you raised your hand and said, I need Jesus today, I want you to come down for just a minute. Y'all hang with me. Hang with me for two minutes. Hang on, guys. If you surrendered your life to Jesus, come down here as we dismiss. Let one of these people Let one of these people talk to you. Let them pray with you. Let them give you a little direction. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to show up at your house, anything like that. But guys, once we've surrendered our life to Jesus, there's some things that we need to do. We need to know how to seek after God. So let somebody stand with you. Let somebody agree with you. Let them give you some direction. Let them seal this decision that you've made today. You don't want to walk out of this place the same as you came in. A lot of people walk into churches and they pray a prayer prayer to receive Jesus and they walk out and continue on with their life exactly the way it was before. God, guys, God loves us too much to allow us to stay in the same condition we were in before we met him. Allow God to transform your life. So if you surrender your life to Jesus today, we're going to invite you to come down. Let one of these folks pray uh, with you and give you a little bit of instruction and, and, and um and, and that kind of thing. If you have a prayer need of any kind, maybe you've got sickness in your body. Guys, we don't have time to go into it right now, but that blood of Jesus, the Bible says he took those stripes and shed that blood that we could be whole. And it's talking about spirit, soul, and body. God wants to touch and heal your body and he can do it today. You can leave free of whatever it is that you're dealing with and struggling with. So we invite you, if that's you, as we dismiss to come down and let one of these folks pray and agree with you. With that said, I know we've, we've kept you guys a little, a little bit after here, but we love you, and God loves you, and we invite you back next Sunday. We've got a lot of things coming up in the next few weeks. We invite you, if you're not a part of a church family, if you're not a regular here, we would love for you to join our family. We're a group of folks that we just love to worship Jesus. We recognize him for who he is, and we're eternally grateful. And we choose to follow him and to serve him all the days of our life. Guys, y'all have a great Easter Sunday. Enjoy time with family. Get some good food. Be a blessing to those around you. We love you so much. Y'all have a great week. You're dismissed. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277. You are Lord, I'm a sinner.